And it's a good morning because this is the day the Lord has made. Amen. I rejoice and be glad in every single day that you get up and that I get up and open my eyes is a gift from, from the Lord. And it's not only a gift because we're alive, uh, it's a gift because we get to we get to live for Him. I really mean that. That's the reason we were made. We were created uh, for God's glory. We were created to be uh, to be used by Him and to give Him thanks. Um, the fundamental issue that's talked about in Romans one of a of a of an unbeliever's heart is that they refuse to give God thanks. They're not thankful. Uh, turn that coin over. What makes you unthankful? It's because you're selfish. You're focused on yourself, which is the nature of sin. Sin is all about me. Um, so this is the day that you know that I've made, or this is the day for me. Uh, and the Bible turns that around because the only place that you're going to find find joy and purpose and pleasure and all of that is uh, is in is in the Lord. So uh, I do not know what He has ordained for me today. Um, but uh, I know that he's ordained it, and so I rejoice in that. Open your Bibles to Psalm 9. We begin this morning with prayer. And then, as usual, I'll show you a little video that will draw our attention to our topic this morning, the beginning, which is uh, developing convictions. How to develop convictions before we get there. I'm going to read the Lord's Word and, and talk to him. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all of your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lifted me up from the gates of death, I will tell of all of your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. 
In the work of his own hands, the wicked are snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even the nations who forget God. For the greedy, or for the needy, will not be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let nations, let the nations be judged before you. Put in them fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but as prayer. Uh, Father, we know that we are but men here this morning. And um, we know that because you have helped us to, to see. You've also helped us to see that, that you are the Lord. And because of that, we, we rejoice. We rejoice at reading your word. We rejoice at gathering together. We rejoice at hearing. Oh, what, what, a, what a blessed truth um, that we've gathered here uh, in the dark before many people have even started their day and we have already heard your voice. You've already spoken to us from your word. What a precious treasure is the word of God. Um, Father, we pray that uh, having that precious treasure, we, we would not neglect it. That whenever our souls are lean, we would, we would come to it and be fed and be nourished. Um, lest we be like the nations and forget that you're the Lord. Lest we be lifted up in pride. Um, and, and think that uh, we can do anything without you. Father, we do not want to be caught in our own snares. We do not want you to have to expose us. Um, Lord, you would do that for us uh, out of grace, of chastisement. Um, you correct us whenever we get astray. You, you bring leanness and difficulty and um, even sorrow to our souls, all for the purpose of drawing us back to you whenever we stray away. Um, we are your children. You chastise your children. But Lord, for the rest of the world, judgment, um, not chastisement. So uh, we thank you that we are your children. We also pray, Lord, that um, you would use us to, to make more children uh, for the living God, that Jesus would be glorified. Bless our day and our time together. Thank you for these men. Lord, I ask that you would bless their day, um, for their desire to serve you and to start it with you. They've come here, they've been intentional, they've been purposeful, uh, and you will meet them, and you will bless them. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, this morning we're talking about, uh, we're on page uh, three, know how to develop convictions. What comes to your mind whenever you hear the word conviction well, I'm going to show you a video. It's actually an audio. It's a video, but an audio, and you'll see. They'll change some pictures so we don't lose uh, uh, lose our attention span. But you'll probably listen to it today. Um, and it's a testimony from John MacArthur uh, that he gave years ago. You can tell because his voice sounds really young. Uh, it's a testimony to a conviction, though. That whether you listen to his voice when he sounds really young or listen to his voice even now, uh, the messages are exactly the same. 
50 years he's faithfully preached uh, the scriptures. Um, so this is about a conviction, and then we'll talk about it in, uh, in just a minute whenever we get done listening. Um, it is now. <laughs> I had a man call me in my church. He said, I have to see you right away. I, I'm desperate. I said, great, come on Sunday before the Sunday night service. He came at 4 o'clock, he walked in, he said, my name's Steve, I'm a doctor. He said, i got some serious problems, you got to help me. I said, I'll do what I can. He said, you got to know this, I'm Jewish, and I don't believe in Christianity. But I've been coming to your church for four Sundays. I said, why? He said, because I have so many problems, some guy told me to come here. <laughs> and he said, all four Sundays, you've been doing this series on deliverance to Satan, which is not seeker-friendly, you can imagine. <laughs> so, he said, you were talking about me. I know I'm damned. I said, why do you say that? He said, well, I'm an abortionist. I kill babies for a living. That's my practice. Last year, my clinic did $9 million worth of abortions. He said, if a woman doesn't have a reason, I give her one. I get her money. That's being honest. He said, furthermore, I divorced my wife, married my second wife, and now I'm living with a woman who's not my wife. And I haven't got the courage to go back to my second wife because I actually like her better. He said, I just bar mitzvah two of my kids. I've been under psychiatric care for a year, and I'm facing bankruptcy. Can you help me? I said, no. Are you kidding? How are you going to help a Jewish abortionist who's under psychiatric care? I said, but I know someone who can transform your life. He said, who? I said, Jesus Christ. He said, oh, yeah. I said, I thought you'd say that. I said, well, look, if you don't want transformation, it's, it's your choice. But if you're interested, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus Christ. He said, I don't know who he is. I said, well, let's start with that. I reached over, picked up a Bible. I opened it to the book of John. I said, see this book called John? He said, yeah. I said, you take this Bible with you. You read John every day, and when you know who he is, you call me. Because these things are written that you might know, right? That's the thesis. You say, what? No tapes? <laughs> you, you just turn that guy over to the Bible? And then I'll get confused. Now the word of God is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You just let it out. It'll be all right. <laughs> so... Thursday, he calls me. He says, I got to see you. I said, come in on Sunday, same time, 4 o'clock. He walks through the door, doesn't even look at me. He's got this Bible in his hand. Walks by me, sits down on a chair, and looks up and says, I know who he is. I said, you do? He said, yep. I said, well, who is he? He said, he's God. Jesus is God. I said, Steve, you got to be kidding me. You're a 50-year-old man. You've been in Judaism all your life. This is Thursday from last Sunday. 
this is a big change. Never forget what he said. He said he has to be God. He said because nobody could do what he did or say what he said if he wasn't God. He's giving me back exactly what John said. If you can't believe my words, believe my works. He got it. By the power of the Spirit of God, he got it. He had to be God. And then he said this. And do you know what else he did? I said, no, what? He said he rose from the dead. And then I don't know why he said this, but he said, and he did it fast. <laughs> I don't Amen. like it struck him, you know? I mean, it is fast. It's three days, but if you're reading, it's a minute and a half. You're out of that chapter. He's out. <laughs> so I said, Steve. I said, so is God. So he came. Why did he come? He came to die. Why did he come to die? He came to die for my sin. How do you know that? He said, you know, I found this book called Romans. <laughs> he had read Romans. The law of the Lord is comprehensive enough to totally transform the whole inner person. And I said, well, what does this mean in your life? He said, what it means is I... My wife is meeting me for church tonight, and I've written this afternoon my resignation letter to the abortion clinic. That's the power of the Word of God. Never ring the doorbell wrong. I thought for a minute he was going to refer him to Mark Hager. <laughs> that's the power of the Word of God. And that's a conviction. It's a conviction. Um, it's a conviction that the Bible has the power to transform somebody's life. Not, not my personality or yours or gimmicks or or otherwise. It's the power of the of the Word of God. Did you notice the conviction there? Now, obviously, there may be times where you take somebody and walk them through through the Bible. Um, but the conviction expressed there is he gave him the word and the word did the, did the work. And we're talking about knowing how to develop convictions. And A, in your little outline there, it says convictions are beliefs which drive your life. They're, they're, they're anchors. They're, they're boulders. They're foundational Stones, their their beliefs, they're, they're what you believe. Their beliefs, which drive your life out of your convictions, comes your practice. Why you do what you do, and you can tell whether they're genuine convictions or not. About is your life governed by them? If you say you have a conviction and yet your life doesn't add up to that, or your life contradicts that, what you do contradicts what you say you believe, then it's, it's not really a conviction. We talked last time about just knowing about something is not the same as being being mature. We can know a lot about God, but we cannot put it into practice. And so this morning we're talking about even more than you just putting it into practice. You, you practice it so much to where it becomes a core conviction of your life. It's, it's part of... of of who you are, um, and it's unshakable. A conviction is not something that changes. Now you may learn new information. You may you may start believing one thing in, in immaturity, and you begin to study the word, and and the Bible may change your mind about something. That's probably happened to all of us. Um, 
if you believe the exact same things that you did whenever you first got saved, now I don't mean like you wholesale, you know, abandoned the gospel that saved you. I'm talking about some of the nuances that are there. You've probably not studied anything. So we're in a process of growth. We're growing. And you got to know some things before you can know some things. So there's the basics, the foundations, and then you move on to maturity, as, as Hebrews says. But convictions are beliefs that, uh, that drive your life. The word convict means to be convinced. You're convinced of these things. This is, a, um, this is something that's unshakable. It's something that you die for if circumstances demanded it. Um, the conviction that you heard there was that the, the Bible is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture the Bible has the power to transform somebody's life. I, I, I have that conviction. I have the conviction that the Bible is the word of the living God. And that if it is proclaimed, it will not only transform me, but it will transform anybody. Um, that God so chooses when they listen to it. It's sufficient. Um, it's why we, we preach the way that we do. It's why we do what we're doing this morning. It's, it's why I'm not giving you uh, self-help stuff this morning or ten reasons how to you know, be a good man. Um, we're just talking about the Bible because the Bible transforms lives. Um, what are your convictions? What convictions do you have? What would, if you stripped everything away, what would you die for? I mean... What, what is the bedrock of your of your of your belief system of your of your soul? Would you say that you would die for the Bible? Now, I understand. You know, I need the grace to get there if I ever, was ever put there. But but would you die? I mean, is it that type of conviction that the Bible is the Word of God? Um, do you then practice that? Does your life evidence that that's truly a conviction? Or whenever it gets hard. <coughs> Do you then revert to other methods? Um, Self-help, psychology, uh, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever it might be. So you connect the conviction with, with your life. What about, the, um, what about the deity of Christ? Would you die for the deity of Christ? Jesus is God? Well, I hope so. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. What about the resurrection? What about practice? What about certain practices that that actually have a uh, you know have have, a, have a, a serious conviction under them? In church history, one we're coming up on one of my favorite phases, uh, which is the pre-Reformation and and the Reformation, specifically in England. There was this lady named Bloody Mary. Uh, it was a queen. She was a Catholic queen. Um, and the Marian martyrs, 250 plus Marian martyrs, died. You know what they died over? Communion. They died over the practice of communion. They were willing to be burned at the stake over communion. And you say, really? I mean, that sounds crazy. You know why they were willing to do that? Because of what they understood communion and Catholicism represents. Um, 
If someone came here and asked if you would change the practice of communion by adding the statement that communion, the real presence of Christ, it's a sacrifice, not an ordinance, would would that would you say no way? Would you be willing to lose your pulpit over it? Would you be willing to die for it? That's exactly what what they were they were willing to do. Um, J.C. Ryle explained why. Let me read you what Dr. Ryle said. You have people today that say, you know, Catholics and Protestants, it's really no big deal. You know, we're all Christians. We can just kind of fellowship together. Um, but if you have conviction, you understand what Catholicism teaches versus what the Bible teaches, you would be unable to do that. Just an illustration of how convictions play themselves out in, in real life. At the Catholic Mass, they believe that it is a re-sacrificing of Christ. That whenever the priest stands there, he's the mediator between you and God. He calls Christ down from his throne. He re-sacrifices Christ on the Roman altar. And then that wafer and juice, wine, literally turns into the body and blood of Christ. And that is a sacrifice. And then you participate in the sacrifice of Christ again, and by doing so, you get grace, and you become more righteous. And then you do it again, you become more righteous and more righteous. It's progressive justification, not progressive sanctification. So Ryle says, grant for a moment that those things are true. And then see the, the monumentous consequences that result from that. If that is a sacrifice, if Jesus is re-sacrificed on the altar by priests, then you spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not perfect or complete to begin with. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides him, Jesus, the great high priest, then he's robbed of his glory. You spoil the scriptural doctrine of Christian ministry. You exalt sinful men into the position of mediators between God and man. You give the sacramental elements of bread and wine honor and veneration that they were never meant to receive and produce idolatry to be abhorred by faithful Christians. You ever seen a Catholic wipe out the chalice because they don't want to spill any of Jesus? They actually venerate the elements and they turn them into idolatry. And last but not least, you overthrow the doctrine, the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than, than at one time, it's not a body like our own. And then Jesus was not the second Adam in the, true, uh, in the truth of of our nature. Does what you believe matter? Yes. Does what I believe matter? Does it, does it matter whenever it comes to practice? It sure can. So what are your convictions? Do you know what you participate in? Do you know what your convictions are? Do you know what those convictions are, whether they're important? Our world is, uh, is wishy-washy and it's fickle. We take polls to determine way the winds blow. Um, and that's going to, it's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. Where are your stakes? 
Are they driven deep? Because when the wind picks up, you don't want to be blown away. Well, the convictions have to be, obviously, they have to be based on the Bible. So that's why we were talking last time. you got to know the Bible. You want to know God, know the Word. And then practice that. And when that happens, the stakes are driven down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the longer you do that, there's a barb on it where it can't be pulled up. And that's why we're here. That's why I'm here. I'm doing it 20-some years. And I still need them driven deeper and deeper. So look at B. The longer that you confront your inner thoughts with the truth and yield to it, the more the mind of Christ will become the foundation and the fruit of your convictions. The longer you confront your inner thoughts, now think about that. What's that say? It's saying that your inner thoughts are not always your friends. You have to confront your inner thoughts. And you confront those thoughts with the truth. That's what it's doing battle, gentlemen. That's why he's talking about being a soldier. You think about marching to Zion and, and a soldier of the cross, and I love those songs. And yes, there is a, a battle that we fight against the world and the devil, but we also fight a battle against the flesh, don't we? And that battle's in your mind. I mean, you, you lay down with the enemy every night, as it's been said, and that's not your wife. It's your own heart. <laughs> Martin Luther said that he was afraid of his... Of, uh, more afraid of the, the great Pope himself than the Pope that sat on the throne in Rome. Because that's what rises in his, thought, in his heart. There's where you do the battle. And it is a hard battle. You confront your inner thoughts with the truth and then you yield. In a war, somebody yields. Um, in a battle, we do battle and the war goes on. The war goes on, we'll go on today. And so you'll battle today, and you want to submit your enemy. And that enemy is your own inner thoughts, what comes from your heart. Yet, the more the mind of Christ becomes the foundation and the fruit of your convictions, then, then the easier that battle you know, becomes. So, what, what's the point? There's fruit that comes from the battle. You've got to do the battle. But then there's fruit that, that comes from it. Um, and it doesn't have to be some deep doctrinal nuance like in the transubstantiation or the real presence of, of Christ um, it can just just believe the Bible is the word of God and their foundational convictions and you build on those convictions and there's a cost to having convictions um, if there's not a cost, they're probably not deep convictions. Uh, and you've heard it before. If if if, if your primary uh, uh, friend group or the people that you hang around with are unbelievers, and you don't rub them the wrong way at some point in your life, you probably need to check your testimony. Uh, if, if living for Christ and Christ transforming you and you becoming a different person, a peculiar person, as as Peter says, that that repels the world. The people don't particularly like hanging around um, with Jesus. That's what John 3 says. Unbelievers, they don't come to the light because they hate the light because you then expose that their deeds are, are, are evil. And the Bible even tells us to work at 
you know, um, I think a good reputation with those who are on the outside. You have to work at that because your testimony that comes from your convictions is so repelling to the extent that Christ, the aroma of Christ is in your life, it, 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 it repels, you know, people. Um, the gospel's offensive. You don't have to be offensive in the way you share it. You should be winsome. But the gospel is an offense. What's the gospel say? It says you're wicked to the core. You have no hope. You're going to hell. That's what the gospel says. Judgment is upon you. The wrath of God abides upon you. But it doesn't end there, does it? But God being rich in mercy. But you've got to start with that. If they're not lost, they have no desire to get saved. They are lost. You're telling them that. But the gospel doesn't end with judgment, thankfully. The gospel ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so, biblical convictions will cost you your reputation with your friends. They can cost you your influence and family relationships. I can remember really being tested at Anthem. One of five vice presidents. Uh, growing company. Um, and uh, my boss was a, uh, our CEO was a preacher's son of a Church of Christ uh, pastor that, you know, no uh, no pianos, no anything. Boys couldn't take their shirts off. Women couldn't wear makeup. Um, you know, just super, super strict. He grew up in the 60s, rebelled against that. And I got saved. So when I started working there, I wasn't a believer. And then I come to Christ. Um... And so there's a change. And I had great fellowship with him before. I mean, he dropped the F-bomb just about every, you know, third word. When we go in the boardroom, it was just the five vice presidents and him. And we would stand there all day long and strategize and hash out things. You know, it was the first statewide HMO in West Virginia. I mean, we're the movers and shakers in the healthcare world. And, and it was fueled by, by smart business minds, but very corrupt hearts. And I can remember going away to youth camp. I never went to church camp in my life. And so here I am at 20-some years of age going to church camp for the first time. And it, you know, we put away our phones, and we don't have access to anything. And you're separated, and you're there for a week, and it's preaching three times a day, and you're reading the Bible, and you're singing, and you're not watching TV. And I mean, there's just no influences. It's just like, man, you come back just tank full as can be. Um, and then I came back into that environment and the first thing you know you come in first thing on Monday morning you know just smacks you completely you know in the face um, and I can remember uh, talking to him about I mean, just how that affected me his language and, and otherwise so I went and talked to him and just poured out my heart. Just, you know, I'm a young believer. I don't know whether you're supposed to do this or not do this. But I, I go to him and, and I was like, his name's Paul. And I was like, you know, Paul, you know there's been a change in my life. You know, I mean, I, I went from you know, this, oh yeah, you know, that's good for you. That's great. You know, that, I mean, religion works for you. That's a wonderful thing. So, you know, I just got back vacation this past week and, um, and you're just, um, you know, you're dropping these curse words, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain, um, you know, all the time. 
and and it just uh, it's difficult. It's difficult you know, for me. And uh, you know, you say we're friends and you, and you care about me, and, and I just ask you, you know, just to try to be try to be respectful of that. Because there was another lady there. She was another vice president, and her husband was was a deacon in in the church. And you know, we would we would talk about it. And so I was the one that they got to go to him, and that was the you know the opportunity. And I never forget it. You know, leaned back in his, you know, his chair, he crossed his arms. He said, "I want to say F. I'll say F. And there's nothing that you'll be able, you know, nothing that you'll do about it. Um, I'm the boss here, and that's just the way that it's going to be." I remember looking at him, and I didn't get angry or anything. I said, you know, that's that's up to you. You know, I can't stop you from you know, from doing what you know, what you're doing. Um, but I I just have humbly laid before you the request, and and I'll just you know leave it with the Lord, leave it with that. And I left. And our relationship changed, um, but there was also a change in his behavior. Every time we got in the boardroom. Whenever it would come out of his mouth, I, 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 would, I would see him catch. Or in, in the beginning, he, he began to poke fun. You know, oh yeah, I forgot. We can't cuss around. You know, the Christians that are in here, we can't say the Lord's name in vain. But then over a period of time, you know, he still slipped, but the behavior, but the behavior changed. The friends that I had before were not the friends that I had after because our friendship was based upon. A completely different set of convictions. What you believe can cost you um, your influence, your family, your relationships. I can remember losing a really good friend in the business world because he asked me to sign a contract uh, without reading it or praying over it. And whenever I read it, there were some issues with it, some things that, that were. Uh, borderline wasn't illegal, but it was it may have been immoral, um, and I needed to wrestle through whether that was that was right or not. He had really mad. Um, he said, "If you're going to cost me seventy five thousand dollars for your stupid Bible beliefs because you want to go pray about this and seek whether it's the right thing to do, if you do that, there's going to be hell to pay." I'm trying to intimidate. You got to do what you got to do, but I got to do what I got to do. It's conviction. I did. Our relationship changed. Um, but like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? Convictions help you take stands in and have courage in hard seasons. Um, if you don't have a conviction before the wind blows, you're going to be knocked over by it. So now's the time to drive it down. Uh, we go over our convictions at TVC, every new member class. It's the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of the gospel, the lordship of Christ, and the centrality of the local church. Everything comes back to one of those four things. We believe the Bible is sufficient. We believe the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. We believe that Jesus is Lord as well as Savior, God, and we believe that the church is God's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through Z. It's 
Thing number one, those convictions come out in how we do ministry. What are your convictions? What are you convinced of? Convinced to the point you'd lose your job over. Convinced to the point you'd lose your reputation over. Convinced to the point it would cost you something. You really don't know whether it's conviction until it may cost you something. You're tested. So, develop convictions and help others develop convictions. Look at number five. There's more. You also have the right, have to have the right perspective of yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 3, 5 through 9. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Have a right perspective of yourself. Um... Know that God can, for his greater glory, maximize or minimize or maximize our usefulness at any time. Somebody open to Psalm 75, verses 6 through 7, and read that for us. Talk about having the right perspective of yourself. Let a man regard us in this manner. You are a servant of Christ. That's the highest uh, and greatest title that you can have. You're not more than that. You don't want to be less than that. But you're servants. And God is the one that determines how to use his own servants. He can maximize or minimize your usefulness. Read Psalm 75, 6-7. Your exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Let me ask you a question. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Are you okay with God putting one down and exalting another? Are you okay if God exalts somebody over you? Are you okay if God exalts you? Um, as a servant, the master gets to choose how he uses the servants and when he uses the servants and to the extent that he uses the servants. Um... There's a human element, there's a gifting that, you know, to the human vessel. Like you listen to John MacArthur, I'm not him. No, no, uh, no shock there. Um, nor can I be him. I'm not Charles Spurgeon. Neither are you. The master determines how he gifts the servants and how he uses the servants. But I'm not disappointed by the fact that I'm not John MacArthur or Charles Spurgeon. I'm thankful to be a servant. That's that's who I am. That's what I am. That's who you are. That's and God is the one who determines you. Where do you come in? You keep your life clean. You develop convictions. You serve. You labor to the point of exhaustion. You do what God's commanded you to do. You do what He has given you to do, and then the Master can use the vessel. But the Master is the one that determines what He uses the vessel. All from a human standpoint, you might think, well, I would like to be a vessel used in the palace. I don't want to be the privy pot that's used in the outhouse. Um, why? Why not? I mean, you were taken out of the bottom of the outhouse, <laughs> and you were made a useful vessel. And when you think that perspective of yourself, you don't have any problem whether you're in the outhouse or whenever you're you're in the palace. So you have to have a right perspective of yourself. And then that perspective is that you're a servant 
my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon, I correct myself because I have all kinds, I mean, who does not have many favorite quotes from Spurgeon? Here it is. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> if he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. <laughs> if you have a moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. For it only needs a few blacker touches to be closer to the truth. It's good. It's true. Look at C. You should never take yourself too seriously. <clears throat> we are merely slaves who believe and stewards of what belongs to God. I can remember in seminary in a class called Church Growth, the professor going around the room, he's going, all right, you're training for ministry. I want to ask you a question. This is going to determine how the Lord is going to use you in life. How big of a church do you want? And this guy goes, uh, 50. Too small. Your, your, your dreams are too small. How big of a church do you want? Well, that guy goes, well, he said 50. He got wrong. He said 100. Not too small. And he asked the other guy, goes, how big of a church do you want? 1,000. All right, now, now you're talking. Now you're talking. You need to have big ideas for God. Big dreams for God, and God fulfilled those dreams. That's a bunch of nonsense. Amen. The desire for a bigger church somehow is going to determine your usefulness. That's what we preached about on Sunday. It's about your faith. It's about you, and how big of a church you want, and how big of a church you can gain. But that's what the Bible says. You're really a slave who believes. And God's the one who sets up one and takes the other one down. And gives one usefulness and otherwise. Stewards of what belongs to God. It's what belongs to God. The church belongs to Christ. Whatever church you would build from 50 to 1,000, if you built it, it wouldn't be the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's the one building the church. And he uses his servants and slaves to do that. And he chooses to place those in the kingdom wherever he chooses. Are you all right with that? Um, you say, yeah, I am, theoretically, until somebody gets exalted over you, until you get passed over. I remember at Red House, I wouldn't advise the, uh, doing it this way, but um, there was an opening for a deacon in our church. And my pastor announced to the congregation that we were considering putting up two men. And he went to those two men and he said, um, I don't know which one of you that the Lord wants to use. He's really mystical, so he's going to pray and the Lord's going to show him. Type thing. Um, and so both of these men are pitted against them, pitted against each other. You know, Why should you be a deacon? Why do you think you should be a deacon? Um, and I'm thinking, this can't turn out very good. I mean, you know, the congregation's going to go, oh, yeah, you know, Deacon Joe and Deacon John. I want John. I want Joe. Give him an up or down vote. You know, that's the way Baptists do it. It's a bunch of nonsense, too, but it's a whole other topic. Split church. 
And think about those two men. I just want to serve Christ. The church wants me and they don't want me. And then one guy came and said, so I want you both to pray about it. I want you to come back and tell me whether you think that the Lord wants to use you you know, in this in this capacity. We'll, we'll figure it out. So one guy comes back and both come back and one guy goes, you know, I, I don't know. I never really thought about being before, but you say so. You know, that's that's fine. I'll, I'll be happy to do it. Will Another guy comes back and he says, you know, Pastor Judge, I've prayed about it. I'm, I've read those qualifications. I'm not worthy. I mean, I don't know of anything that's in my life that would be like totally out of line, but I, I just, I, I, I just don't know that I could actually do that. Um, and so just with fear and trembling, I don't know, and Pastor Joe said, um, I think you're the guy that we want to vote on. And he took the qualifications and the office so significantly, so seriously, he's just serving you know, in, in the church. Don't take yourself too seriously. Now think about that other guy. He's willing. Is he going to walk away thinking, you know, oh, maybe I should have been the guy. The Lord will put you to the test on some of those convictions. We're merely slaves who believe. Uh, Luke 17.10, 1 Corinthians 4.2. Luke 17.10 is where Jesus says, you're, you're unworthy slaves. Rejoice. Um, you've only done what's been commanded. 1 Corinthians 4.2. You're stewards of the mysteries of God. And we should realize that God is the ultimate examiner of motives. You do not know why the Lord doesn't give you a position or exalt you in a position or why the Lord takes a position away. But God does. He sees the heart. He knows what he's doing. And you rest in that. You trust him. Look at six. You have the right perspective of longevity. The right perspective of longevity. Teach people to stay at it. Be faithful for the long term. They were talking about developing foundational convictions. A foundational conviction is stick and stay. It's it's a longevity in ministry. You should not view your Christian life as a shooting star. You should view it as a freight train that grows and builds in in steam. People watch and are amazed at shooting stars, and they come across evangelicalism on a regular basis. And you know what happens to those shooting stars? They burn out and they crash because the foundation that, that it was built on was was nothing. The freight train it has it has rails, trains on the tracks, the Bible, the Word of God. There's a conductor that's there. The train's there. It builds in intensity and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And it will just run as long as there's tracks. That's what you want to be. Um, and people also ride the train. They, they get on it. Take it, take it both ways. Don't fall for fads or gimmicks. That's so tempting. Uh, when I first got saved, it was Henry Blackaby experiencing God. This is going to revolutionize the you know, Christian uh, purpose-driven life. Nobody even remembers what that is anymore. But that was a big deal. Don't fall for fads or gimmicks. Now, maybe the Lord uses some of that. Okay, that's fine. That's the point. The Lord's using. Um, 
But when uh, a Christian author stands up and holds their book up and says, this will change your life, I run. Because this book's what's going to change your life. Amen. And that's going to take work, and it's going to take your lifetime, and it's going to be in it Sunday after Sunday, day after day. And every time you're in it, you're hammering that stake in the ground with those convictions, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And the winds that blow don't have the same effect. Don't believe Satan's lies concerning perceived influence. Stay away from the love of money that can come with, with influence. You go to Second Peter or Jude, um, two of the three primary identifiers of false teachers, people that are not of the Lord, will always revolve around two things, immorality and greed. If you look at any of the of the big name preachers, big influencers that fell, greed and immorality is involved. So be careful. Don't believe the lies of perceived influence, and it can it can help you stay away from the from the love of money. So have the right perspective of influence. What is influence? Men must not measure influence in the church at a superficial level. Um, we can't evaluate by numbers or perceived influence. Such external and often fluctuating dynamics are not a reliable measure of God-blessed ministry. 2 Timothy 4.3 is the verse that you all know. The time will come when churches will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own <coughs> desires. And that's not just a verse that I'm quoting this morning because we want to do it our way. And anybody that doesn't want to do it our way, then they're just you know, wanting to heap a teacher to themselves. We're talking about foundational convictions. We're talking about biblical Christianity. And it is really, really easy to be excited this morning to have a room full of men at 6 o'clock in the morning. And so I'm praying before the Lord. It'd be easy for me to look at you and go, wow, Grace and Granite's really successful. I have no idea whether Grace and Granite's successful by the by the number of people are, that are in this room because we're, we're on week number four. If this room is full a year from now, it still may not completely determine whether it's successful. What will determine it's successful? Whether you internalize and I internalize what we're going on and it transforms our life and then that begins to transform our marriages and that begins to transform our churches and that begins to transform our workplaces. That's how you'll know whether it's successful or not. Not whether you draw a crowd. People draw crowds all the time. And crowds will gather around the type of teaching that they want. And crowds won't stay around the type of teaching that convicts them or is contrary. And so you can go back to 4D, can, uh, or sorry, 4C, they can, biblical convictions can, can cost you church members or church size or church budgets or whatever else it might be. It's true. Look at number three under 7A. If audience approval makes particular teachers popular, 
The church will assume that God is blessing gifted teachers and spirits 